Hi, and welcome to Alder Pod number 10. This is Chapter 8 of the Alder's Gate. Below. Cora could barely make out Jem's silhouette before her, as her glasses were smeared with sweat and dirt. The only light was from Professor's lantern, and its rays did little to illuminate the pressing darkness. Cora's lungs burned from the exertion. She'd been running and stumbling in the dark for time out of mind, and coupled with panic and discomfort from her clothing, she was beginning to worry she would simply pass out mid-stride. As for Jem and Professor, they both moved at paces that baffled Cora entirely. Just a tick, Cora said, her voice raspy and rough. She bent over, clutching at her side. Her corset had been digging into her ribs, the busts merciless, bruising. I can hardly breathe, Jem. Please, give me just a moment. Heat rushed to her face as she took long, greedy breaths of air. The tunnel air was far from fresh, and Cora could swear the temperature and humidity were rising steadily as they ran. Her heart was thundering, and she could feel her pulse all the way in her ears, which were now ringing to boot. How Professor managed to keep up the pace, she could not guess. But then again, the little woman was most assuredly not wearing a corset either. Get down! Professor yelled from ahead of them. Cora fell flat to the ground, tasting dirt, as Professor unloaded her rifle. The shots were strangely muted in the earthen tunnels, but Cora could feel the vibrations under her fingertips and see the light produced from Professor's little rifle. I should be crying, Cora thought to herself. I should be sobbing. I want to. It would feel so much better, but I can't. She wondered if one could have the tears frightened right out of them. More exchange gunfire was followed by a shout and then a low, gurgling noise. Professor stopped shooting, and Jem darted forward, jumping over Cora and plunging into the darkness, a white blur. Cora gasped as she heard sounds of a struggle, and then two more gunshots, regular and final. She waited. Nothing. A cold terror washed over her as she scrambled back up to her feet, her legs buckling slightly as she righted herself. Cora, stay down, growled Professor. Gods, Professor, do something, Cora said as Professor cocked her shotgun and placed herself in front of her. Jem can't hold up against... But Cora didn't have time to finish her sentence because Jem emerged, her face splattered with blood all down one side. She'd taken the duster off of whomever it was Professor had been shooting as well, and carried a pack of a pair of pistols dangling from her belt. Her face was placid and cool, her lips set firm. They won't be chasing us any more, Oak's God, Jem said. She tossed the leather pack on the ground and fastened the pistols around her hips. She watched Cora a moment. You can take your break now. The tone of her voice sent a chill through Cora's. It was as if she were speaking with someone else entirely. What in the gods? Cora asked, backing away from Jem slowly, nearly losing her footing as she came up against the uneven earthen walls. Professor let out a long, hissing sigh, and then thrust her pistol through the holster on her back. She was frowning, and in the lantern light her wrinkles carved deep crevices across her cheeks. Her spectacles glimmered, and she looked as irate as she had when she'd found Cora and Brick kissing what felt like ages ago. "'You'd best tell her, Jemiver,' Professor said at last. Jem buttoned the duster carefully before responding, pulling each of the brass buttons through the hole. 
She then smoothed the front of the jacket and tugged down at it by the pockets. As odd as it was to see the skinny girl in the jacket, tracks of blood still drying on her face and guns on her hips, Cora couldn't help but be in awe of the sheer rightness of it. It suited her. Jem stood straighter, and her eyes were bright, as if kindled from the inside. Of course, thought Cora, that could just be a trick of the lantern. Tell me, Cora asked, looking from Professor to Jem again. Tell me what? I'm not much good at telling stories, Jem said with a slight shrug that Cora could swear was not a motion she'd ever seen her do before. It was a subtle move, but it spoke nothing of her years of servitude, nothing of the underclass position she'd kept since she was but a scrawny little underclass girl. It was characteristic, but of a character Cora didn't know. I'll make it quick, Professor said, her tone still resigned. She looked up at Cora, raising an eyebrow. You recall your parents left Queensland before you were about six or seven? Yes, of course, Cora said, confused. She couldn't imagine what her parents had to do with this, but Professor was rarely direct with her explanations. Well, from what I know, and I don't want know everything, mind, there was something of a skirmish up those parts up in Queensland. Your mother didn't think it was smart raising children at court in those times, and believe you me, I lived there, so I know. She was right. Anyway, your father, Alistair, wanted to be sure that there was nothing to worry about. There are certain kinds of maids, servants... "'Underclass girls,' Professor continued, indicating Jem with her hands. "'Girls trained to, if all else fails, keep an eye out, and a gun primed, in case of attack, or abduction.' "'You mean Jem? This whole time?' Jem held up her chin and wiped it with the back of her hand. "'Since I can remember,' she said, though there was a little pride in her voice. "'But why didn't Father tell me? What good would it have done?' asked Jem. And what's it matter anyway? The point is, my job is far from done. Professor here has agreed to get us to safety. Cora felt utterly abandoned. If anything, she'd held to the reminder of her maid, Constant Jem. But it appeared that what she thought she was wasn't real at all. She was a fantasy. No, even worse, a lie. But if you were supposed to protect me, who was supposed to protect Denna? Jem and Professor exchanged uncomfortable glances until Jem finally spoke. Cora, you're the eldest. You hold with you the surety of the line. I was instructed, instructed, mind you, to keep after you if aught was to happen to Denna. I had to make a choice. She was in the thick of it, and I couldn't get to her in time and save you. But they've taken her. That's enough butts out of you, Professor said, shaking Cora at the elbow. It did little actual impact, but snapped Cora out of it at the very least. You listen here, Miss Gray. You best be thanking every god you know, and them you don't, that Jem came here to your aid when she did. And not to mention that I risked my hide to get you out of Ville. Cora bit down on the inside of her cheek, hard. She felt her temper rising, and with it, a bit of the fatigue left her. How do you even know where we are? We could be lost. We're not lost. How do you know? I know, because I built this, Professor said. She shook her head and went about prodding the sides of the wall with her hands as one might cattle. Well, technically I didn't build them myself, but I built the digger that did it. Beautiful machine. You should have seen it in its day. Aged brass, plated sides, an engine that ran hard as a horse and purred soft as a kitten. Gods, that was a lovely piece of work. 
It moved through the earth, tunneling like a mechanical mole. Sight to see. What happened to it? It was Jem who asked. Professor picked up the lantern again, turning away from the wall and toward more darkness. It was destroyed. Not of my own choice, but it was decided that such a thing would be best destroyed than fall into the hands of the royals, who had a penchant for turning everything I ever did into a war machine. But enough, Professor said. Come now. We gotta keep going if we've any hopes of finding refuge. But what about... Cora gestured toward the darkness Jem had just emerged from. Let them sort it out, Professor replied. Cora watched helplessly as Jem passed before her like a reborn warrior. As Professor continued ahead as well, her lantern light began to diminish while Cora waited. She took a deep breath and looked back behind her, where she knew lay a dead knight, likely still bleeding into the soft earth. She felt her fanciful childhood dreams of knights, ladies, and great quests evaporate before her. And rather than languish in the dark, she righted her spectacles, wiped her nose on her ruffled sleeve, and went on toward the light. Cora had never wished so much to see the sun. She was cold, filthy, and hungry beyond belief. What sleep she had managed was plagued with nightmares. She continually awoke startled, as if she heard gunshots again. Once, she swore she heard Denna's voice at her ear, beckoning her to wake up. She'd awoken with a sob, reaching for her sister's hands, and finding only emptiness and the cold solace of lantern light. Every time she opened her eyes, it was darkness again. Darkness and cold, damp air, and the memory of the worst day of her life. Professor swore up and down that she knew where they were going, but provisions were slim and morale was low. Jem was constantly questioning Professor's motives, and Professor was uncharacteristically solemn and surly by turns. What little information Cora could gather from them, including their present whereabouts, was insufficient. She had lost track of time, of thought, of being. At times, Cora wanted to scream, and though there was plenty of time to cry, she was certain that she had for simply forgotten how. Fear replaced it, and with the fear a kind of mental and emotional paralysis. What awaited her in the dark, she did not know. The longer she stood still in one place, the more enclosed she felt. She would stare at earthen walls, sometimes fortified with brick or stone, and could swear she could actually see them closing in on her. No, no, she was certain. Something waited. Something watched. It moved when they moved, breathed when they breathed. The first time she felt its presence was during a break when Professor had stopped to wrap up Jem's wrist. She had twisted it rather badly during a blind fall a few turns before. Exasperated and tired beyond belief, Cora had slunk up against one of the tunnel walls and tried to take a few deep breaths, assuring herself that with proper discipline she could fend off the panic. She could be strong, as her father would have told her to do. So anchoring herself with her hand on the brick, she began to recite the Ardesian alphabet. But as soon as she started, she recoiled, wrenching her hand back from the wall with the most peculiar sensation. She felt something through the wall, 
slimy, sticky, and moving. The hair along her arms rose, and she could feel the back of her neck prickle. She touched the wall again, but it was just plain dust and dirt. Then something moved. Did you hear that? she asked. Jim and Professor looked up to her, their faces cast in the eerie orange glow of the lantern and torch. No, replied Jim. What did it sound like? Her concern was evident in the tone of her voice. Cora tried to find the right words for the sound. It was movement, not necessarily a sound. It was a feeling, as if she knew something were nearby, and if she could get close enough, she could hear it. But that didn't make any sense. Well, Professor asked, Cora, are you all right? Not entirely, no, Cora said. She pulled her hand away from the wall and used it to pull back her loose hair, which was heavy with grime and sweat. I really, I really think I'm starting to see things and hear things. Tying the knot a little tighter on Jem's wrist, Professor patted it in calm benediction. I need, Cora said, panic rising in her throat. Her voice was shrill as she forced herself to whisper. She feared otherwise she would shriek. I need to get out. I, I need the sun. Professor, please, let me out. Let me out. Cora, calm down, Professor said. She put her small hands on Cora's wrists, but Cora wrenched them free. Her thoughts were coming too fast now, racing. Her heart beat in her chest, accelerating her despair and anxiety. If only she could break through the ceiling and breathe some fresh air— if only she could see Brick's face again, his blue eyes set like jewels in his soot-stained face. If only Denna would appear, assuring her that all was well. If only her father had been there, he could have saved them all. But no, all was lost. It was darkness, utter darkness. Something is coming, she said. Something is coming. I can hear it. I can hear it, Cora said crumpling to the ground, her legs no longer able to hold her up. She held her hands to her head, pressing hard to dispel the horror that surrounded her. Whispers! There were whispers everywhere! And there was music, a fiddle, in the distance, a counterpoint to the whispers. They were coming. There's nothing here, Professor said, but her voice belied her worry. Jem was nearby, standing stick straight and glancing to the left, down yet another dank fork in the path. Wait, Professor! Pro Cora heard Jem shouting, but she couldn't process it right away. The whole tunnel began to shake, and Cora stared ahead, behind where Jem was staring. The creature stank, and it lumbered. A slinking, glowing mass of green and gray, skin slick with mucus, rippled and ridged like a reptilian slug. It nearly took up the entire tunnel, its girth was so great, and Cora watched, petrified, as it made an impressive speed toward where Professor was standing. Quickly, the diminutive woman loaded her gun and shot toward the creature a barrage of staccato explosions and light. The monster let out a long hiss as it was hit, and Cora saw, to her utter horror, that it had a man's face, two faces, though grossly distorted by sickness or seedcraft she did not know. They were mottled, greasy, streaked with blood and slime, wild black eyes rolling to and fro. Its faces contorted toothless and blind, its mouth working to produce some sort of speech that was only screams of terror, like one being tortured. One mouth lolled its tongue out while the other worked, lips flapping, drooling gray mucus. One dripping arm, or tendril, Cora could not tell what it was exactly, reached out and knocked Jem to the ground. She did not move. 
The reek of the creature's body filled Cora's nose, and she recognized it. It was the six-sweet scent of carrion. She'd once found a dead cat in the stables, and it had smelled just the same, a familiar memory of the fragility of life. And though she knew she had access to her guns, she couldn't retrieve them. She was frozen, lost in a pensive sort of terror. Part of her was repulsed by the thing she saw, but another recognized a remnant beyond the ugliness and deformity. It seemed almost human. But no, there was a look on its face. It licked its lips and let out a long moan, a longing moan, and looked into her face. It wanted to feed. Professor was shouting hysterically, but Cora, Cora was dazzled. Her thoughts churned slower and slower, the panic so recently consuming ebbing away softly. It would be over soon. Only then, a tremendous explosion roused Cora out of her state, filling the entire cavern with blinding light and raining rocks down in her head. Then there were voices, a throng of voices, swirls of white and screams, not from Gem or Professor, but from the creature. It was dying. Someone shouted her name, but she couldn't answer, and something hit her on the back of her shoulder. A quick stinging sensation followed, and she fell into a warm soft darkness. Cora turned over, tried to open her eyes. Her lids were so heavy, but she could tell, even without opening them, that she was still in darkness. Dimness, at very least. She was still below. I'll open my eyes, she said to herself, and I'll be home in bed. It's the night of the Blooming Day dance, and I fell asleep in Father's armchair. Denna will be home at any moment, and I'll have quite the laugh at my dream. It was not complete darkness when she opened her eyes, and it was not despair that she felt, but a distant, numb kind of resign. There was light enough to tell that she was first and foremost in a cell of some sort, and still inescapably underground. Her specks were gone, and she squinted ahead, noting odd green lanterns, phosphorescent in the dark, dotted along the walls before her. They cast their weird light on vertical bars made of stone, stalagmites of white and gray, knobbed with age. A cage. A cell. She was on a simple cot, and there was a chamber pot nearby, but that was all that remained in her cell. To each side were thick, dark walls of gem and professor, there was no sign. The memory of the creature, the slug with two faces, returned to her, and she retched unexpectedly, barely managing to miss the bed. But it had been so long since she'd eaten, there was nothing left to throw up. So she just gagged and spat until she could no longer. At last she stood, her feet bare now, and wrapped her arms around herself. The blue dress she'd been wearing had been replaced by a long white shift, and though the temperature of the room wasn't too cold, her feet were still chilly. Couldn't have even managed to leave me with a pair of decent socks, she said to herself, startling as her voice echoed at her. Oh, my specs. If you ask, they might bring your specs to you, someone said. It was a young man's voice. The accent was different, though. At least, I hope they'd be reasonable enough to. Cora looked up, peering in the direction of the voice to her left. Who 
Who's there? She ran her fingers along the wall to her left and saw a slight chink in the wall between the layers of the rock. And there was movement there. She thought she saw the glint of an eye, but it was hard to tell. I didn't mean to frighten you, he said. I'm sorry, you just sound a little distressed and it hardly settles well with me. And if you're cold, they provided me with a blanket or two by the front of the cell. You might look to see if you've got some too. Thank you, she said, squinting toward the bars of the cave. Yes, there was a pile of blankets, dark brown, and woven with surprisingly intricate black patterns, and very soft. She pulled one around her shoulders. You're most welcome, said the voice. I hope it helps, even if it's just a little. It does, but, well, I don't suppose you could tell me where we are, could you? She went back toward the chink in the wall, putting one blanket down to sit on and peered through the hole. She could now see the side of a shoulder and some brown cloth, then a flash of light hair, she thought. But she couldn't be certain. Without her specs, it was difficult to know for sure. The young man sighed. We're a long way down, he replied, his tone weary. I've been here almost a week, I think. Though, it gets hard to keep track after a while. I expect they've found you and brought you in, same as they did with me. When did I come in? she asked. A few turns ago. I was sleeping. Or trying to, I guess, he said with a sigh. He shook his head. Sleep is elusive here, though, I find. I can imagine, Cora said, softly, thinking back to her difficulty sleeping underground. Her head hurt. And there weren't any others with me. A small woman with a large hat and a girl, well, I suppose she's really a woman, with two guns and a long duster. No, just you, I'm afraid, he said. Cora craned her neck to try and see better through the hole. And who are you, then? For what good it's worth, I'm Emery. Well, I'm Cora, she said. And it appears you and I are in a similar situation here. It occurred to her that perhaps this Emery person deserved to be in the cell, and perhaps speaking to him might not be the best idea in the world. But his voice didn't sound dangerous, and he had a quiet manner about him. He certainly wasn't was polite. "'Wherever here is,' she added. "'Well, I know that, at least. They told me. "'They did. "'Yes. We're in the Nithings.' "'The Nithings?' asked Cora, nearly laughing. "'I suppose if you're making a literary reference, "'then this might be a bit like the Nithings would be, "'but those are just silly stories. Everyone knows that. "'The Nithings in the underway, with little men, their faces gay. "'They trod, they try, they trolley, under the roots of the old alder tree.' "'Emery was silent.' I know the old rhyme, too, but they said that's what it's called, and I'm inclined to believe them. He heaved a sigh. Who is this they you keep talking about? You'll see soon enough. They keep up their posts pretty regularly, checking in on us, making sure we're not causing any trouble. All I can gather so far is that they're not pleased with me at all, nor you. I think they think I brought you in here. She stared ahead, contemplating. She was desperate to trust someone, and Emery seemed kindly enough. But her life, as of late, had been a long series of deceptions. As she tried to piece the situation together, she felt a sinking feeling in her stomach with the realization that she was still stuck underground and such a long, long way from home. And now, Professor and Jem, her only connections to her old life, were gone. She had no abilities of her, of her own to rely on, even if she were to escape the cell. She had no idea what she would do with herself once freed. How did you get here? 
Cora asked at last, the pressure of the silence a bit too much for her to bear. Having another voice nearby did her a world of good. I'm afraid I don't even know myself. He paused, and Cora watched the chink in the wall, desperate for a glance at his face. I've had a rather difficult time these last few days, admittedly. You don't sound as if you're from the territories, Cora said. Neither do you. You're as Queensland as they come. I lived there a few years of my life, and my parents, and... Your older class, of course. The accent comes with the territory. No, uh, pun intended. I'm not from either, though. I'm from Moore. It's an island to the north. Cora said, Moore is a long way away. How did you end up here? I was sent to Barnet on the Queen's orders, but... Well, I'm sorry, where did you say you were from? Vel, Cora replied. It's not too far from Barnet. Emery felt silent and cleared his throat. Well, I sincerely hope your town fared better than Barnet. Though, it seems if you're here, then at least the Order of the Oak didn't manage to get their hands on you. What happened in Barnet? asked Cora, unsure she wanted the answer to that question. But they were interrupted by a low, grounding noise like cartwheels in the gravel, and new light flooded along the corridor, illuminating Cora's surroundings more fully for the first time. It was not a warm light, but cool and blue, like twilight. She noticed there were other cells across the way, but these were most certainly empty. For all its drear and dampness, it was a surprisingly clean place. She stood and went to get a better look. Like clockwork, muttered Emery. A lone figure came into view, swathed in a long white jacket with shiny silver buttons, tall and lean with pale skin and dark eyes. They carried a lantern and a platter and stopped first by Emery, then right in front of Cora, face to face. The face she stood blinking at was noble, beautiful even, but impossible to decipher its gender, though she guessed the age to be not far from her own. She stared, trying to make sense of the features— the gentle sloping nose, the round eyes, the sharp chin, full pink lips, and all along the figure's neck were tattoos of leaves, twining upward and ending by their ears in lovely filigree. The hair was odd, though, too, cut short, but streaked with white in the very middle. "'Oh, you're up,' said the person, startling at the sight of Cora. "'Yes,' she said, her hands trembling as she wrapped the blanket more securely around her shoulders. She was suddenly self-conscious to be facing someone in nothing but a shift. "'And I need to tell you. You've made a mistake. I haven't done anything.' "'You're gonna have to tell that to Nesme,' they replied. "'Well, then bring him in,' Cora said, hitting the stalagmite bars that held her back with an ineffectual palm. First of all, Nesme is not a he,' replied the figure, tilting their head to the side, clearly amused.' She, then, said Cora, impatient. Nor is Nesme a she. Another smirk. Pardon? Placing the platter down near the floor and sliding it through to her, the visitor sighed. I expected the bard would have filled you in. He's a loquacious one. The bard? That's me, came Emery's voice. I regret I forgot to mention that piece of information. I see, Cora said. The food did smell good, though, as Emery had mentioned, it didn't look good. The smell reminded her of mushroom pies Mrs. Dalwooden used to make, but the sight was more like foamy horse dung. Still, she couldn't deny that food would do her a world of good. As frightened as she was and unsure to her current situation, the pangs of hunger weren't getting any better. 
Gesturing to the food, the robed fellow shrugged. It's good. Nutritious. It'll give you strength, you know. It looks awful, Cora said. We eat it every day and we're fine. Are you then? Cora asked, kneeling down and poking the platter of food with her finger. And what exactly might you be? They're sibs, Emery chimed in for next door. Or so they'll have us believe. And we have names and proper pronouns, thank you very much, replied the sib. My name is Ez, and you can call me Heya. Not he nor she, but Heya. Not his nor hers, but Heyas. Not to him or to her, but to Heyan. That's the basics, anyway. Heyas, Heyan, Heya. It sounded like Heya. Cora frowned, trying to process Ez's little grammar lessons. So you're neither neither male nor female, Ez replied, folding Heya's arms over his chest. Well, just something in between. Cora was truly at a loss for words. You mean... Ez smirked, and Cora couldn't help but smiled back. She caught herself, though, and turned away. I can't possibly find that face handsome, she thought to herself. How on earth could I think such a thing? This person was not only delusional, but clearly a freak of nature. How different was this sib from the creature that had nearly killed Cora? And yet, the more Cora looked at Hea's face, the more she realized how perfect the lines were, how balanced and lovely Hea was. It was as if she were looking at the face of an ancient fresco, or a marble statue, something so beautiful only an artist's hand could make it. Ez finally said, hey, a smirk disappearing, and took a, and a look of cold judgment replacing it. Unfortunately, you were trespassing in a zone decreed to be forbidden to any uplander, a trespass that carries with it quite a few dire consequences. But you have to understand, said Cora. We were fleeing for our lives. We were just trying to escape terrible things that had happened up there, and we were just attacked by your monster. That horrific creature, Cora said. Ez sighed, shaking Hea's head. That was one of our guardians, set to protect us, and to warn us, in case of an invasion. An invasion? Cora hissed. We were lost. Your friends, Ez said, and then stopped short, frowning. No, that's enough out of me. I'm afraid I'll have to leave you now. What about my friends? asked Cora. She swore that if she could have reached through the bars, she'd have strangled the sib's tattooed neck with her own hands. I'm not at liberty to divulge any more information. We'll be by in a few turns for proper examinations. Hea paused, a look of concern momentarily registering between Hea's dark brows. Try and get some rest, huh? And do eat. Wait! called Cora, but too late. Ez quickly retreated, Hea's footsteps echoing as Hea retreated, and with the light. Fury rising in her now, Cora kicked the platter of food squarely with her foot, splattering it across the most adjacent wall, streaking the wall green. What a pig-headed bucket of piss, she yelled, using one of Professor's more colorful terms. What in hell's what's wrong with them? Well, in all truth, Lady Emery said from the cell beside her, they have their reasons. I have to get out of here, Emery, Cora shouted, throwing herself at the stone bars. She fell back onto the floor, momentarily stunned from the impact. I have to find my friends and my sister, she cried, now burying her face in her hands. She simply could not understand what was happening to her. The speed at which her life had changed was just too much. She tried to bash down the stone bars until her hands bled. Emery pled with her not to continue, she kept at it until her arms were shaking so violently from fatigue she could no longer will them to do anything more. It was probably just as well. 
Whether it was the exhaustion or the despair, she did not know. Her head felt as if it were full of cotton. Her body felt as if it were no longer her own. Then she found her tears. She cried until she felt emptied out, scraped clean like a gourd. And as she lay on the cold floor of the cell, she realized Emery was humming. She listened to him, his voice low and smooth, lulling her to sleep. <laughs>